Matthew 18, 15 to 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Lord of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right, so we're continuing our sermon series within a sermon series. So we've been going through the, the book of Acts as a church body, and uh, the elders asked me to do a sermon series kind of on accountability and this thing called church discipline because uh, we released a, well, we're going to release a policy that we had to write and we're kind of to get the building. I was part of the processes. Uh, our parent church said, hey, this is a good idea, and we agreed. Uh, and so we kind of put together a process for that, but instead of just putting out a policy, right, saying like, here, what is this? Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation and, uh, and look at it from a biblical perspective. And so that's what we're doing. We're talking about uh, accountability and church discipline, and we've preached a couple sermons on that. And now we're going to kind of talk about the, the main passage that everyone thinks about when they hear the words church discipline, or maybe you don't think about it because you've never heard of the concept before, but hopefully... Uh, what you hear today uh, will make sense and kind of fit in line with what we've been talking about. And if you want more context, you can go back and listen to the other three messages on this topic. Let me go ahead and pray for us and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for accountability. And that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who love us, who want to help us walk the pilgrim journey, uh, even to the point of, of church discipline, if necessary. And so we're, we're grateful for what you give us and help us to understand it because it's not a comfortable topic. Help us to hear what you want our hearts to hear uh, and what you want our church to hear. So this is really a message for us as a community, as a special people set aside by you. And so help us to hear from you today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what do you do uh, with someone you love who has a runny nose. They have a runny nose. Many of you are experiencing that this time of year. Maybe you have a runny nose right now and I can't see it uh, because of the mask. Well, of course, in today's COVID world, we get a Q-tip. We shove it to their brain. <laughs> and then we feel better, but they do not. <laughs> that's, the, that's the age we live in. That's not typically what you do uh, when someone has a runny nose. When someone has a runny nose, you hand them a tissue, a Kleenex. Maybe you say, your nose is running, here's a tissue. Or what if they don't want to wipe their nose? They're like, what do you do if they don't realize like they got a cold or they're sick? Well, you could forcefully wipe their nose with a tissue. And maybe if you're a parent, you've said, been there, done that. I've certainly done that. My, my children are getting better at wiping their noses, at least one of them is. Now, what if, uh, what if they don't want to wipe their nose and they won't let you wipe their nose? What do you do then? Well, you could pray for them. Lord, would you see them, would you help them see their need to wipe their nose? You could encourage them to go see a doctor. I think you should talk to a doctor. A doctor, they might have something to tell you. Or if it gets really bad, you could set up a surprise medical intervention. Oh, we're just at the doctor's office today. Maybe you should go in and talk to them. They might have something you need to hear. 
These are all ways that we can deal, uh, we can deal with a runny nose and how to address it. When someone you love has a drippy nose, you want to help them. You want their nose to be cleaned. And as people in a, a family that recognizes the reality of God and the reality of goodness in our world and sin in our world, that's like brokenness in the world, sometimes church people get sick too. We get spiritually sick. We get a spiritual runny nose. And we need someone to help us realize that we have a runny nose. We don't even realize that we're sick. We don't even realize that we're caught in sin. The sin is kind of unrecognized in our lives. So we need someone who loves us to come along and offer us a tissue. <laughs> we need them to turn our attention to Jesus to address that part of our lives. Because we know that Jesus is what it is all about here at Cornerstone and for the whole world. That Jesus loved us enough to give his life for us. There's a reason Mubashir and Bona hauled the cross out here this morning so that we could be reminded of the love of Jesus Christ, that he gave it all for us. And if our noses are running, we've actually kind of turned our, our heart away and our mind away from that cross. And we're just kind of letting life go on without receiving that free gift of forgiveness and grace and transformation. And so today I want to talk about five steps to addressing a spiritual runny nose. Five steps to how we can talk to our brothers and sisters in Christ when they're caught in sin. And to restore them so that they no longer have a running nose, so that they're healthy and, and flourishing. That's what we want. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about our first step. Now, step one, number one is prayerful self-examination and discernment. I know I don't have slides up today. I did email out you the slides since I'd already made them and then we decided to be outside. Step one, if you write it down or you can remember things, uh, is prayerful self-examination and discernment. We've talked about this when we looked at Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and James 4, 1 through 3. We realized how important it is to get real with yourself before you ever attempt to get real with someone else. We talked about four categories of sin that are kind of worth addressing, because the Bible does say like it's, 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 there's glory in looking over an offense, but sometimes there are things that we need to address. The sin that dishonors the name of Jesus, not just so like, I don't like that, but it truly dishonors like the reputation of Christ Jesus or the sin that damages your relationship with them. And, and Matthew 18 really speaks to that. It's like if your brother has something against you, go and talk to them. The sin of hurting others, right? You're, you're, you're doing a sin that like hurts your, your family or your children or your friends, or your coworkers, or in fact, the sin that is hurting them, that they don't realize it, but they're caught in a pattern uh, that's hurting them. And that's perhaps like the clearest illustration with the, the running nose that's hurting them. You remember airplanes? You guys remember those things? They, they, they occasionally like fly through the sky every once in a while and we see them and Elijah's like, airplane! <laughs> remember when we used to go in those and we travel places and uh, you would you'd come in and you'd kind of get pushed and shoved to your seat. You'd sit down and then you'd wait for a while and eventually, you know, the engine would start to, to heat up and and, and the, uh, the flight attendant would come out and they'd do a safety, uh, a safety speech. <laughs> and they'd say, you know, the exits are to your side and behind you and in front of you. Uh, and make sure you uh, don't take any of your belongings with you because uh, we're going to loot that later. 
Uh, and and if you need it for if it's in case of a water uh, a water they even do this if like you're in Kansas going to Denver in case of a water landing like uh, you know the, the life vest is underneath your seat but don't like blow it up until you're outside and they say and make sure like, and they say this especially to parents and it really stuck out with me this last time that we went uh, on a flight say parents make sure that you put on your oxygen mask before you put it on your child. Don't put on your child's oxygen mask before you put it on yourself. Doesn't that sound kind of harsh? Well, I love my child. I would give my life willingly for my child. Shouldn't I put their oxygen mask on first? They say, no, put it, put yours on first because you might pass out before you have the opportunity to put it on yourself and they can't do it for you. Now, if they pass out and you have yours on, you can still put it on them. See, we need to take time to prayerfully examine our own hearts and our own lives and go through a season of discernment, getting real with ourselves and putting our own oxygen mask on before we attempt to run around with our oxygen mask and put it on other people's faces. We want them to breathe, we want them to have oxygen, but we also need to take time to do it first for ourselves. So ever, before we ever address someone else's sin, we need to make sure that we can breathe. We want to be restored and renewed because it's out of that place that we want to help others be restored and renewed. We can't give what we don't already have. And so step one is prayerful self-examination and discernment. Remember that oxygen mask. Now step two of kind of this accountability process is private one-on-one -on -one conversation. So step two, private one-on-one -on -one conversation. And now we come to the section of scripture where Jesus in our passage today explains accountability, eventually leading to church discipline. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See, accountability, like getting real with each other, it starts with relationship. It does. There's a brother. This implies that there's some sense of community, of relationship. Uh, and if anyone needs it, there's a blanket back there. Uh, it starts with community, relationship, knowing one another. And see, we want to, when we do accountability, we want to do it within the context of love. Love for God, love for each other. And so the first kind of aspect of personal one-on-one -on -one, uh, accountability is just having a relationship, correcting out of love instead of out of some sort of like duty or I'm the one to correct others. And then gentleness, part of a personal relationship, what it does for you is when you have a relationship with someone, it makes you gentle. Now our foundation verse for this year is we haven't really been doing it outside, but it talks about correcting in a spirit of gentleness. And that means like we're to love others like we ourselves want to be loved. We're to correct like we would like to be corrected graciously, gently. Now your nose is incredibly drippy and you're at your home you're sitting on the couch your spouse says i noticed that your nose is drippy would you like me to get you a tissue he said oh that's so sweet i just so appreciate that yes thank you please get me a tissue so your spouse you expect them to like run to the bathroom or walk over to the kleenex stand beside the couch instead your spouse opens the door to the basement they walk down into the basement. You hear their steps. You hear them rustling around the basement. You're like, I asked for a tissue. This is kind of odd. Like, I don't really want a tissue from the basement. And they come back up the stairs. 
they walk over to you and they hand you a nice piece of sandpaper. We're talking like 36 grit, like really chunky, could strip a concrete floor sandpaper. Now, would you take that tissue and wipe your nose? Would you be like, oh, thank you for the sandpaper. That's just what I wanted. <laughs> no way. You, in fact, you'd probably question the relationship. You would say, does this person actually love me? Do they actually want what's best for me? Or, or, or what's going on here? See, that's why we have to correct in a spirit of gentleness. So it shows and demonstrates our love. It's a, it's a soft tissue like that. You would never get sandpaper for yourself. You would always get tissue. And that's a learning curve, right? I know that in my life, I've certainly offered sandpaper. And so we learn. We learn and it takes time and we receive forgiveness and we continue forward. And so we, we correct each other personally, gently, compassionately, and privately. Jesus says to go alone, to go one on one. Go by yourself and tell them their fault and only him or her their fault. See, little Jimmy, little Jimmy has a huge green booger sticking out of his nose. And his sister Bethany is concerned for him. But instead of telling Jimmy about his huge green booger, Bethany calls Rick. Says, man, you've got to see this booger. It is so big. Then she texts her friend, Linda. Do you have any tissue at your house? Jimmy has a giant green booger. Finally, when she's later at school that week, she says to Cameron, Jimmy has really been getting a lot of green boogers lately. Would you pray for him? Bethany, tell Jimmy that he has the booger. Otherwise, you're the booger. It's kind of a funny illustration, but it illustrates a truth. And, and kind of a, a truth that we all need to hear, especially as a church family. That when others sin against us, when we see them caught in sin, we need to go to them directly and offer the tissue to them, not to tell other people. I'm going to be sending out our church accountability and discipline policy. It's going to go out at 6 a.m. Monday morning. So you can just be waiting 6.01 a.m. just to click refresh on your, your, uh, your Gmail, and you can get the policy, and you can read it. In this, in this policy, there is a section that talks about clarifying elder involvement. And in this section, we as a kind of church elder said, you know what, we're, we're willing to talk about kind of the sins in our church body, those issues that, that, that come up, but only after the people in our congregation have had that personal, private, one-on-one -on -one conversation. So we're not gonna talk about the sin of anyone in this congregation until you have had a conversation with them personally. And that's final, that's not optional. This is something that really is culture shaping. That when we talk to others or we talk to the board of elders about the sins of others, creates a, a gossipy, unloving community. And we wanna, we wanna take a posture of having grace. So if you go and have that personal conversation and it doesn't go well, by all means, talk to one of the elders and we'll try to help you have that conversation. But first, have that conversation personally with them. This is kind of a funny thing. Uh, one girl, I saw this post online in her mom's kindergarten. There's a stool in the corner of the room with a picture of Jodie Foster. She's like, mom, why is there a picture of Jodie Foster in the corner of the room? It looked like kind of like a little shrine to Jodie Foster. Like, do you guys really love Jodie Foster at this kindergarten? Or the, like, is there something I don't know about the newest generation that they really love 
Jody Foster? My mom says, no, when the kids come to us and start to tattle on other kids in the room, we say, go tell it to Miss Tattle. Go tell it to Miss Jody Foster. Another kindergarten, apparently they used to tell it to President Obama. They had a picture of him in the corner. Go tell your problems to the president. And so we as a community, guess what? We have something even better than Jody Foster. We have something even better than President Obama. We have Jesus himself. We can go to the Lord of the universe and say, look, look what this person did to me or look what they're experiencing. Man, this hurts. And Jesus says, okay, either you and I can deal with this personally and you can forgive and move on, or you need to go talk with them directly. Talk with them first. Talk with them personally. Talk with them so gently. Examine your heart. Take time to pray and search your own mind and soul, but then go to them. Don't go to anyone else. Go to them. Guys, this is a learning curve. This takes time sometimes to figure out, but let, let's just have today be a reset for our entire church community to say, this is what we're going to do going forward. We're not casting judgment on the past. We're just saying, this is what we're going to do. So Jesus's steps for accountability and church discipline. Number one, prayerful self-examination and discernment. Step, step two, private one-on-one -on -one conversation. And step three, private conversation with one to two other witnesses. Step three, private conversation with one to two other witnesses. My, my toes are getting kind of cold, so uh, I can feel it. I bet you guys can feel it too. I won't get offended if you get up and stand in the sun or whatever. Verse 16 says this, but if he does not listen, so talking about the person that we just talked with, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence or two of two or three witnesses. So if the individual in sin won't listen and still unrepentant says, I'm not going to deal with this. I don't believe this is sin. Take a witness. Now, a witness could be someone who saw what happened, but also someone who can witness to the validity that this action is sin. This is, this is not healthy. This is not good. The elders talked for a while about what is a witness, right? The, did someone else actually have to, to see something happen in person? So we define it this way. A witness is normally someone who has personally observed a sin or pattern of sin in someone's life. But a witness may also be a mature believer who can help establish a behavior or action as simple based on scripture, even if they have not necessarily observed the action itself. So if you talk with someone about a sin and they say, you know what, I, I agree I did that, but I don't think it's wrong. You can say, well, I'm, I'll go get a, grab an elder or another mature Christian believer and we'll go to them together and just have a conversation so that we can explain from the Bible, from Scripture, that this really is something that needs to be confessed and repented of. Now, obviously, this is all very difficult. This is not easy. Accountability done right is accountability done hard. Like it's, it takes time. It's, it takes a lot of effort and energy. It takes time to like go through that process of self-discernment and sitting down before the Lord and saying, Lord, examine my heart before I go and examine someone else's heart. And then having the courage that when you do go to someone and talk to them, if it doesn't go well, to get someone else and to have a second conversation. Man, that is hard. That is not fun. But what if you do that and, and more willing, they, they see their sin, they repent, they confess and say, you know what, I need to change this part of my life. What happens if they don't do that? What do you do after that? Do you just drop it and say, well, we're just going to let them be because, well, this is the, kind of the place where we live in, where people can just do what they want? No, I actually think this is this is the part where you get like your family involved. You kind of 
Paul a family family intervention. You don't get the sandpaper and just say, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna scrub even harder until they receive my my love." No, we, we get we get the, the church family involved. So step four is present this issue to the church members. Step four, present this issue to the church members. Verse 17 says this: If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. It's like this little but incredibly important sentence. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. Now, this is only the second time the word church has been used in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the word ecclesia, and it means like the church community, the gathered body of believers. And by church here, we do mean the members of the church. And this is one of the reasons that, that we think membership is important at Cornerstone, because it, it says these are the people that are committed to one another and committed to helping each other navigate uh, joys and struggles and uh and they, they, these are the people that have said, I'm in, I'm committed. And so we see that in our scripture passage. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. Uh, and so, you know, we would call a meeting and say, would the members come? The elders may allow non-members to come. I don't know, we kind of take it on a case-by-case -case basis. But then we as the church family would come around this person and say, yeah, this is a pattern of sin. This is sin, and, and it's not good. Come out. It's the entire church family coming around someone and saying, we love you. It, like, family interventions happen for uh, people who are caught in drugs or addiction, and, and those are all serious things. But we, as we talked about the very first week, sin is lethal. Sin, unrepentant sin, sin brings eternal damnation, eternal separation from God's love. So why wouldn't we want to have a family intervention? Just to say, we love you. We all have tissue. None of us have sandpaper. We all have tissue. And we just love you. And we want to be here for you. Please come out of sin. So we see the steps are prayerful self-examination discernment. Two, private one-on-one -on -one conversation. Three, private conversation with one to other witnesses. Four, present this issue to the church members. And then step five, church members enact church discipline. So the last two verses say this. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be found in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So now we're getting to church discipline. I want to point out that everything we've talked about up till this point, the personal the personal accountability, the one to two other people accountability, the big group accountability, that's all accountability. That's just trying to, to say, let's get right with the Lord. There is a moment, though, where it shifts from accountability to actually something called church discipline. You've had this meeting, you, you have the body get gathered body of believers, and they say, yes, this person is continuing an unrepentant sin. They're continuing a pattern of hurting others or hurting themselves or, uh, or destroying relationships, and it doesn't line up with who Jesus is. See, Jesus is someone who... who like his, his way is completely different than the world's way. He loves God. He loves others. He's willing to address sin. Your lifestyle is different than what Jesus expects of us. Now notice, nowhere is it saying, oh, you did this little thing, and everyone is expected to be perfect in our church community. That is not accountability. That is legalism. And legalism is where you have all these expectations and all these little rules that everyone has to live up to. Now this is, this is really truly about the heart. 
There's a difference between a heart attitude of repentance and a heart attitude of stubbornness and doing life my way. So there may come a point where we as a church body have to say, you know what? We, we don't recognize your confession of faith anymore. So what does that look like? Well, you declare that they don't believe in Jesus anymore. They're, they, they need to know Jesus. Uh, number two, you can remove them from church membership. Three, you can not serve the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, communion, the, the, the bread and the cup, right? These are meant to be signifiers that we are all loving Jesus and following him and are his body. If you're living an unrepentant life, then I guess you're not a part of the body. But, but the, the thing that we always want to remember is that all of these actions should include a calling the, the non-believer to repentance and faith. And just saying, you know what, we're not doing this because we out of spite, because of love. That we just want you to believe in Jesus. <laughs> we just want you to know him. And I guess you didn't know him when we thought you did, but it turns out you don't really know him. So repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and receive the free gift of God's grace and eternal life. That's what church discipline is. It's, it is kind of harsh, you know? It's like defibrillators applied to the chest, right? It's shocking. Uh, you don't do that to someone who's fine. If you, if you do that to someone who's just walking down the street, it's gonna cause damage. You only do a defibrillator when like the, the circumstances are dire. And this person really needs to be brought back to life. It's like a it's like a wake up call. Jesus, you know, he says, treat them like a gentile uh, uh, or a sinner. He says, uh, a gentile and a tax collector. Well, that begs the question: How did Jesus treat gentiles and tax collectors? Matthew eleven says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, in front of tax collectors and sinners. That means Jesus was accused all the time of spending time with people who uh, were tax collectors, were like the lowest of society, sinners, it's like a fancy word for prostitutes. And Jesus spent time with people that he wasn't afraid of making him look bad. And so that means that we aren't supposed to like shun someone who's been brought under church discipline. In fact, even more, we're supposed to reach out to them and love them and say, be a part of our, our, our community. We want you to see who Jesus is and how Jesus is completely different than the path that you're choosing. And Jesus is the path that leads to eternal life. And so that's it. That's church accountability and discipline. There's five steps, prayerful self-examination and discernment, two, private one-on-one -on -one conversation, three, private conversation with one to two other witnesses, four, present this issue to the church members, and five, church members enact church discipline. Lord willing, any one of these steps can lead to repentance and faith. You might go through that process of self-examination and God moves then. You might go and have that personal conversation and God moves then. And wouldn't it be great like if we had a culture where accountability was just a normal part of our lives that we were not, not waiting to, to spot other people in sin, but just confessing and saying, here's, here's where I'm broken. Uh, here's where I need forgiveness before God. And would you help me do that? Right? An invitational culture of just walking through life together knowing Jesus. I want to end with a closing story. I, you guys look a little, little choice. This is kind of the last little story, but it just illustrates church discipline. This is not based on any one particular story, maybe a compilation of ones I've overheard and how I hope that it could be. It's kind of a serious topic, but uh, just hear, hear this out. So imagine Tom and Jane 
uh, a couple in the church, and they are having a rocky season in their marriage. It's so rocky that Tom begins flirting with one of his coworkers, someone he feels gets him and appreciates him for who he is. Pretty soon he's sneaking out to see her. Jane already knew their relationship was off, but senses things are just getting worse. And Tom, Tom is more distant than ever. Now over a drink after work one night, Tom boasts Ken about their new relationship, about his new relationship with his coworker. And Ken is shocked. Uh, he's not only Tom's coworker, but he goes to the same church as Tom. Ken knew that Tom's marriage was in a tough spot and had been praying for him, but he didn't realize it was that bad. That night he goes home and begins to pray and study his Bible. He searches his heart for the shortcomings in his own marriage and confesses to the Lord how hurt he was by his parents' divorce. See, Ken doesn't want to operate out of any sort of hurt or vindictiveness. And then Ken rereads through Matthew 18 and prays for his next step. That weekend, Ken steps out in faith. He swings by Tom's house and he asks him questions. He asks him about his marriage and the relationship and when that started. And Tom, Tom is embarrassed at first, a little sober right now, and when Ken pushes on him about it, Tom, Tom isn't ready to give up the relationship. She just makes me feel so happy, he says. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, Ken goes home feeling like he said what he was supposed to say, but feeling discouraged because, well, Tom is stalling. Tom didn't want to go forward with repentance and forgiveness. Now, Ken asks his wife to check in on Tom's wife, Jane. But don't give her the gritty details, and it's best if Tom confesses directly to Jane. Together they pray for their marriage, uh, Ken and his wife. Ken, not sure what to do, but wanting to follow the steps that Jesus has laid out, goes to one of his church elders, a mature Christian believer, and talks the situation through. Explaining to the elder how he had a personal conversation with Tom, but that it went nowhere. Together, they ask Tom to meet up with them. Tom is reluctant, but agrees. And Ken and the elders share their own marriage stories, their ups, their downs, and also how the Bible allows divorce in very specific instances, and this isn't one of them. The elder even admits that he went through a season that was very difficult. Tom says he'll stop seeing his coworker. This is a, a, an amen of, of praise. And Ken and the elder pray with him and say, we'll check in on you. And everything seems to go well for a couple weeks. Ken doesn't see Tom flirting with a coworker around the office anymore. But one day he does walk by Tom's office and they're inside flirting. Ken pulls Tom aside and says, what's going on? Tom admits that he hasn't stopped talking with his coworker and he's probably going to get a divorce. Ken is dumbfounded. He calls the elder that night and they decide it's time to meet to discuss. They meet, pray, they fast, and decide to reach out to both Jane and Tom. It's gotten, it's gotten past the point of Tom being able to, talk, to tell Jane. Two of the elders approach Tom and two approach Jane. Tom evades and is non-committal. Jane is saddened, but she is not shocked. She thought Tom might be doing something like this, but she didn't know what to do. She wants to work on their marriage, but she knows she's made mistakes. The elders meet again to pray and process. They try to give Tom more time, but Jane calls to tell them he has moved out and filed for divorce. He is no longer attending the church or the men's breakfast. The elders call Tom to tell them that they and Ken are taking this to the church body for church discipline. Tom yells at them, angry, saying they can't do that. The elders remind him of his church membership and covenant to the church body. They call a closed meeting for the church membership. They invite Tom, but he does not show. They explain the situation to the church membership. They're all shocked and saddened, 
And they decide not to enact church discipline quite yet, but to pray and reach out to Tom personally as a church community. They give Tom another two weeks, but he does not repent and keeps going. Finally, the elders call another meeting to recommend bringing Tom under church discipline. This time, Tom shows up. He sits silently in the back, arms folded. One by one, the members of the church get up. They tell Tom how much they love him and Jane and want to see their marriage succeed. Jane is there too. She looks pensive, lost in thought. Finally, Jane gets up and confesses that she knows she has hurt Tom and she is sorry for her responsibility for what she has done. She also says how much his actions have hurt her and the kids. Finally, Tom's hard exterior cracks and he breaks down weeping. He rushes out the door and leaves. They as a church community were ready to enact church discipline, but it seems like the Holy Spirit might be getting through. They decide to give Tom more time. That weekend, Tom calls Ken and says he is sorry and he is going to give his marriage another shot. The elders and Ken set up an accountability structure. Tom finds another job so that he doesn't see his coworker anymore and begins to go to marriage counseling with Jane. The elders discreetly update the congregation that they are seeing improvement, but ask for continued prayer and support for the family. Ken is grateful because God worked. It was hard and painful, but Tom and Jane's marriage is still intact and they've returned to church. Over time, Tom becomes an outspoken advocate for accountability and even church discipline. He tells his coworkers and extended family members how much his church loves him, that they told him the hard yet gentle truth when others just told him to do what makes him happy. Over time, Tom and Jane start mentoring and discipling other marriages in trouble. They see God save other relationships. The kids are so happy their parents made it through. Ken continues to pray for Tom and Jane and is amazed by God's grace in all their lives. That's accountability. That's church discipline. It is only possible by God's grace. But we ultimately, we believe in a God of resurrection, right? And that means that God can bring life out of death, even the relationships that have died. God can, God can bring life out of death. And that's, that's what accountability and church discipline is grounded upon the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. It was a bit chilly outside, and this is an important topic, but we just pray that you would uh, rest in our hearts what we need to have heard and remove everything else. And Lord, policies are policies. You know, they're just ways that we're trying to put into practice with you've given us lord will we not depend too much on this thing but uh we really just try to do it the way of jesus outlined in scripture and would this policy be a tool that can help us love people that would remind us of all the steps we need to take uh and just to be gentle and personal and private lord we love you and god if there's uh, if there's any sense here today of anything that i have said wrong would you just wipe that away we love you and we need you in jesus name amen